following audio is from Crossroads Church in West Ossipee, New Hampshire. For more information about Crossroads Church, you can go to www.crossroadsossipee.com. Hello. Um, it, uh, it will be a miracle if I can talk after singing like that. So, praise the Lord. Um, turn with, with me to Luke chapter 10. We're going to look at verses 25 through 37. That's after we do the catechism. I'm just letting you turn in your Bibles. Uh, sure I was. Okay. So, okay. I, you think just talking is the miracle? Okay. Uh, so, question... 21, um, what sort of redeemer is needed to bring us back to God? Kids. One who is truly human and also truly God. And adults. One who is truly human and also truly God. And question 22, why must the redeemer be truly human? Good, good job. My, my hearing's not great. I, I hear you back there. Adults, that in human nature, he might on our behalf perfectly obey the whole law and suffer the punishment for human sin, and also that he might sympathize with our weaknesses. And question 22, why must the Redeemer be truly God? Excellent. And adults, that because of his divine nature, his obedience and suffering would be perfect and effective, and also that he would be able to bear the righteous anger of God against sin and yet overcome death. Amen. And yet overcome. Thank you for joining us, Chris. So again, uh, for those of you who are unfamiliar with our catechism, we are using the New City Catechism, um, and that's a book that you can purchase um, or a free app that you can download. Just search for the New City Catechism in your thing, whatever device thingy. Yeah. Okay, so I trust you're already all in Luke chapter 10, since I gave you a chance to turn there already. We're going to look at verses 25 through 37. And that's on page 869 in the Pew Bibles, a passage well known as the parable of the Good Samaritan. And again, before we get too much further, I do want to say um, thank you to uh, Mike Plummer and Sam Keniston and Joel Clement, who have been working on getting the TVs that are out, out there in the foyer and in the nursery and in the nursing room and downstairs, getting those working so that those people who are in those areas can still kind of at least observe uh, the service of working in the kitchen or, or in the nursery or having a, having a timeout. Um, that stuff is all working again, and we'll praise the Lord for that. Uh, I also praise the Lord that I only had to drive Sam down here and not really do anything else. That was <laughs> wonderful. 
So thinking about Luke, um, oftentimes when we look at parables and accounts and scriptures, uh, I don't know if you do this, but I tend to identify with one or more characters in the story. Um, and it's popular in teaching of the church today to kind of paint ourselves into the picture. Um, and if we're honest, we, we tend to identify with the hero, right? Everybody wants to be the good guy. Um, for instance, if you read the story, this is not a parable, but an actual account of David and Goliath, right? Um, we turn the story into a story about us and how um, we should you know, face our giants with faith like David did. Um, and that, that makes for engaging sermons, to be sure. Um, but I don't think they're, they're true or helpful, honestly. This morning, we're going to look at another one of those accounts and examine the layers of it, and that's the parable of the Good Samaritan, one of the mess, uh, most well-known uh, parables of Jesus. And if you want to talk about the David and Goliath story later, I'll, I'll be happy to talk with you over lunch. It's fun. You are not David. Um, it is fun. So let's read Luke 10, um, 25 together. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. He said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go. And do likewise. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful to be gathered together in this place, dry and comfortable. We're thankful, Lord, that we are able to freely gather around your word, to study the words that you have given to us, breathed out by your Holy Spirit. We pray, Lord that you would grant us more grace to understand the message that you have for us here in your word. That by your grace, your spirit would speak. That our hearts would be softened and our minds would be changed. For your glory alone. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So here we have a lawyer questioning Jesus. Now, we can't make a lot of lawyer jokes here. Because, Christine, we love you. <laughs> this, um, 
it's important for us to, to recognize that this lawyer is not uh, a lawyer like we have today. This was not an attorney or a trial lawyer or a prosecutor or defense attorney. This was an expert in the law of Moses. All right? This was a religious leader and scholar among the Jews. But, like any good lawyer would, when he questions Jesus to put him to the test, he asks a question that he already knows the answer to. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, we can't go another second further without recognizing that this is one of the most fundamentally important questions anybody ever could ever ask. What do I have to do to get eternal life? Is that not the fundamental question? Is that not why we are here? That we worship because we know the answer. We worship the Lord because he is that answer. And maybe some of you here, if you thought about it for a moment, might struggle with the answer to this question. How do I get eternal life? And I hope by the end of our time here this morning, there will be no doubt as to the answer to this fundamental question. So as we, one of the things we love about our Lord Jesus, his response to this man's question is a question. Don't you love that when you ask somebody a question and they ask you a question in response? Like, no, no, I wanted you to just tell me. Um, So when the man asks, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He answers his question with another question. What is written in the law? How do you read it? Not what do you think about it? What have other people told you? How do you read it? How do you interpret what the law says in answer to this question? Well, the man knew the answer already, right? The man answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. So if you read the other gospel accounts, um, Matthew and Mark, uh, not John, but Matthew and Mark both uh, give Jesus credit for saying this. Uh, Luke says the man said it. Um, it, it's not really that important. Um, that is the, the crux of the teaching is that you should love the Lord, your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. This man is directly quoting scripture either way. God said, it, uh, the, the father said it first through the Holy spirit in Deuteronomy chapter six, verse five. Um, this is also known as the Shema here, hear, O Israel, the Lord, your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Um, this, uh, and he adds onto it Leviticus 19.18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Right? This is known as the great commandment. And Jesus affirms it as such when he tells the guy, you have answered correctly. You're right. Do this and you will live. Now, amen. <laughs> this points directly to a question that perhaps you've made, you may have never considered, or maybe it's something that's always bugged you. How were people in the Old Testament saved? Was anybody in the Old Testament saved? If faith in Jesus is the Rubicon you have to cross, what about all the people that lived before Jesus? How were they saved? Well, the, no, it isn't circumcision, Greg. <laughs> 
You may want to sit a few rows back next week. <laughs> How did people in the, under the old covenant, covenant e- inherit eternal life? And here is the answer given right here. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. That's the answer. Now, loving the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength meant trusting him and trusting his promise to send the Redeemer, right? Even in the Old Testament, people were justified by faith in Messiah. They just didn't know his name yet. And in fact, the the name Jesus from the Hebrew word Yeshua, it means deliverer, right? The promised deliverer. Messiah was coming. They had faith in that and they were justified by faith in Messiah, just as we are justified by faith in Messiah. For them, Messiah was coming, right? For us, Messiah has come and is coming again. In the Great Commandment, we have the summary of the two tables of the law, the two halves of the Old Testament. They're not equal halves. There's the first four and the second six, right? The first four commandments have to do with loving the Lord our God, and the second six have to do with loving our neighbor as ourselves, right? And you guys, have, you, 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 to this point, you've memorized the Ten Commandments, right? So you can recite them all together, right? The first four, you shall have no other gods before me. Shall not make uh, an idol to bow down to. You shall not use the name of the Lord in vain. Shall keep the Sabbath holy. This is uh, worshiping as a family, right? That's the first four. That's loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? And the second table of the law, the second six, all have to do with loving our neighbor as ourselves, right? Uh, you shall. Uh, Honor, honor your father. I don't remember the hand signals for the second six. Shall honor your father and mother, right? Uh, you shall not kill. Um, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not lie. You shall not covet. Those all have to do with our relationships with other people. That's loving our neighbors as ourselves. So the lawyer knew this, the answer to this question already. He knew the law. He knew how one was justified, how one could inherit eternal life. What he didn't know was himself. That's the problem. The lawyer says, the lawyer asked, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So how should the lawyer have responded? We see how he did respond. He should have said something different. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Do this and you will live. If the lawyer knew himself, he should have said something along the lines of, Lord, that's impossible. I can't do that. I've never been able to do that. I can't do that completely. I can't go a half an hour without breaking one of the commandments. Say nothing about my entire life. How can I do that? He should have admitted that it was impossible. It always has been. He should have asked Jesus, 
How could it be possible? What was necessary? And I'm sure that Jesus would have instructed him on the grace of God that was at work even in that moment. But that's not what he said. But he, in verse 29, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So he thought he knew the answer to this question, too. Unfortunately, his answer was wrong. It's important for us to be aware that, for, that the Jews in the first century had very defined rules regarding who their neighbor was. And because of what the law said about loving their neighbor, it was important for that neighbor to be classified as someone they deemed worthy of their love. Right? The trouble is they got it wrong. You won't find it in Scripture. Their definition of who their neighbor is was anyone who they thought was worthy of being their neighbor. And this excluded Gentiles. And this certainly excluded Samaritans, who they considered their enemies. Not just people we don't associate with, but enemies. Jesus said in Matthew 5:43, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Loving your neighbors, loving your enemies, excuse me, loving your enemies was totally contrary to what they had been taught. It's you love your neighbor and here's who those people are. So as long as you're good with them, then you're all set. Loving those who you consider to be your neighbor and good enough for your love was fine. It's a good thing we don't think like that anymore, right? I, I don't know if you've noticed, but this is the 4th of July weekend. And here in New Hampshire, uh, especially along Route 16, um, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of people here um, that some of us just wish... Uh, would leave their money behind and go back home, right? You know, I have a friend who has a sticker on her car that says, we're not all here on vacation, <laughs> right? But this is a perfect example of how this is at work, even in us today. Like, we just, oh, we just want them to go away. Just send a check, right, from wherever it is that you're from. This is exactly what Jesus is saying. Right? Don't don't do that. Don't be like that. That's not loving your neighbor. That's not loving your enemy. That's not loving anybody but yourself. Loving your enemies was totally contrary to what they had been taught. Loving those who you considered your neighbor was fine. When the man responds, desiring to justify himself, says to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replies, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now, you've got to understand, again, Jesus is talking about a real place. 
He's talking about a real road. And this may very well not have been a parable, but a story of an actual event. We don't know that for certain, but some of the scholars think that the way he words certain things, um, this might have been a story that they were familiar with. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho was about 17 miles, 17 to 19 miles of steep, rocky terrain. This is a real wilderness, not like this, where you'll see bears walking in your homeowners association, right? This is actual wilderness. There's rocks and sand and nothing else, right? A home to robbers and thieves looking to prey on unsuspecting travelers. This was a shortcut from Jericho to Jerusalem. The more established way, the safer way is to go through Bethlehem, right? There's far less uh, opportunities to get mugged on the road, um, but this was kind of a shortcut. The victim in Jesus' parable was a Jewish man traveling alone through this treacherous wilderness and fell victim to robbers who robbed him, stripped him, beat him, and left him for dead. And in this wilderness, if left there, he certainly would have died unless someone came to help him. If you're laying in the dirt, bleeding out, and nobody comes to help you, you're done for. Now, the priest and the Levite... Two other men who were traveling separately, most likely on their way home after their service in the temple, came upon the man on the road. Now, in studying this in the past and thinking about this, I've often thought about what was their motivation to stake away? Like, I often thought, well, because I'm not that smart and thinking they were going from Jericho to Jerusalem, like they're going to serve in the temple, so they have to be ceremonially clean when they get there. So don't touch the bloody man, because that makes you unclean. And then you've got to go through this whole rigmarole to get ceremonially clean so that you can do your service in the temple. Well, um, if, you, if you read it, uh, it explains it it's the other way around. They've already served in the temple, most likely. That's an assumption. I'll give you that. They are traveling away from the city. Ceremonial uncleanness, not really a motivating factor here, I don't think. These guys knew the road. Right? They were taking a shortcut because they wanted to get home, and they know it's dangerous. And what happens if they stick around to help this guy? They might be next. Right? This is self-preservation. They not only don't want to bother with someone else who's hurting, they don't want to be laying next to him hurting stripped and beaten and robbed as well. What if this guy was a trap? He was like the bait. Right? They beat up this one guy, and they're just on the other side of the rock waiting to jump out. I don't know. But the truth is, as J.J. Van Oosterzee wrote, neither the voice of humanity nor that of nationality nor that of religion speaks so loudly to their heart as the desire for self-preservation. They didn't care. That's the motivation. They didn't care enough about this guy. They left him. They didn't care who he was. They didn't care what happened to him. Their hearts were hard, and they were completely devoid of compassion, so they left the man there to die. Now, that's, when we think about identifying with people in a story, that's, that's not who we want to see ourselves as, right? That's just a... If you, if you do want to think of yourself like that, can we make an appointment and we'll sit down and talk? Like, I like to be the guy who leaves people lying on the road, dead. 
Sorry. Should note not go off notes by now. Verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. What do you notice about this man's response? He didn't say Samaritan. He said the one who showed him mercy. What a jerk. Martin Luther calls him the haughty hypocrite because he wouldn't even say the word Samaritan. This is how separated they were. Look, I I get what you're saying, Jesus. I'm still not going to say the word. Gross. He only said the one who showed him mercy. So let's consider the layers of this parable. On the surface, the lesson is very clear, right? Rule number one, don't be a jerk. All right, close the book. (laughs) Amen. Let's close in prayer. Don't be a jerk. All mankind is our neighbor. It doesn't matter who you are, where you're from. Nothing. If you are a human being, you are my neighbor. It doesn't matter if you live next door to me. It doesn't matter if you live on the other side of the planet. You are my neighbor. I am your neighbor. That's clear. We are commanded to love them as we love ourselves, which means everybody. Isn't that easy? (laughs) But they're such jerks. They don't want to love them. We could talk about that all day long. Who are the bad guys in the story? No, not the robbers. They're just the foil, right? They're the... They're not the antagonist. They're the foil. They, they expose the plot. Right? We turn the priest and the Levite into the bad guys, don't we? Right? And the Samaritan, clearly the good guy. Right? You, you're, not, <laughs> you're not firing off answers. You feel like this is a trap. <laughs> You've been here before. So, of course, in every, with every good story, we want to identify with the good guy, so we imagine ourselves as Samaritans, as the good Samaritans, remind ourselves to do good to people, regardless of where they're from or what they're like, because that's what Jesus said to do. Right? <laughs> Maybe. Like, there's even, like, there are laws written called uh, Good Samaritan laws that protect first responders. Like if you if you perform CPR on someone who is having a heart attack and you break their ribs, the Good Samaritan laws say that person can't sue you because you're trying to save them, right? This the Good Samaritan, the Good Samaritan. Does Jesus call the Samaritan good? No, he doesn't. This is us Samaritan. At least he used the word. That's good. I think there's more to it than just being nice. 
The risk of turning this parable into an allegory, which I don't think that it is, and I don't think that's safe to do with Scripture, and a lot of biblical scholars are not fans of that idea, I still think that there is something going on at the spiritual level that is more than just be nice. Maybe we aren't the hero of the story, even though we thought we might like to be. When you think of yourself in this story, where are you? We want to think, be like the Good Samaritan. Be a helper. Like Mr. Rogers says, when tragedy strikes, look for the helpers. We're the guy on the road, beaten, bloody, stripped, and left for dead. Instead of the robbers being random strangers, we're the robbers too. The robbers are our sin. Robbers are our pride. Robbers are our selfishness. It's our own inability to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. To say nothing of loving our neighbors as ourselves. That's why we are dying in the ditch. Maybe the priest and the Levite, their religion, their good works, they cannot save you. They don't even help. If we think we can be good enough, if we think we can do enough good things to earn God's favor, to make God happy with us, that he'll let us into his kingdom because, after all, I mean, we never killed anybody and I always try to be nice and I love my neighbor just like I love myself. It's not going to work. They are ineffective for salvation. They pass by on the other side of the road to get away from us and our wretchedness. So who's the good Samaritan now? It's Jesus. He's not the good Samaritan. He's the better Samaritan. He forfeits his own life. He risks his own safety. He risks his own comfort to tend to our wounds and to save us. But instead of wine and oil, he pours out his own blood that by it our wounds would be healed. When we think about parables, when we think about stories in Scripture, true accounts, Jesus is always the hero, not you. We are always, always, always the victim. We are always, always, always the bad guy. Our sin caused our problem. Our sin leaves us for dead in the ditch. And our efforts to be good and our efforts to be religious leave us there dying just as bad as if they had not touched us at all. Jesus is always the hero of the story. And we are the ones in need of rescuing. So is that lawyer. By his own efforts, his own sin, he's the one in the ditch. Who was his neighbor? It's Jesus. He asked the fundamental question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What did the man in the ditch do to get saved? <laughs> he just laid there and took it. And Jesus saved him. 
In the parable, along with you and me, the lawyer is the one in the ditch dying. And the answer to the question for him and for us is the same. Trust the rescuer. Trust the better Samaritan. Trust Jesus Christ to bind your wounds and to pay for you to have a place for in, in his eternal kingdom and pay for it with his own blood. To love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself is only possible through faith in Jesus Christ and with the help of his Holy Spirit. That's the only way to do it. Can't be nice enough. We can't do enough good things. We can't volunteer. We can't serve on enough committees. We can't raise enough funds. It's impossible. That's a terrible way to live with the pressure and burden of your own eternity on your own shoulders. You just stay there in the ditch, dying. But with the help of the better Samaritan, Jesus, we can be saved. And not just saved for one day when we die or one day when Jesus comes back. But every day between then and now, we get to live for him in a totally new way. And we get to emulate what he did here. Why do we want to be like the Good Samaritan? Because the Good Samaritan is Jesus and we want to be like him. So now we're motivated to go help those who need help to love our neighbor as ourselves because that's what Jesus did and we want to be like him. Don't we? So, let's go and do thou likewise. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this story. We thank you for this um, lesson. And Lord... I pray that our trust in you as a better Samaritan, as a better rescuer, would only grow as a result of our time together in your word. I thank you for this reminder that we're not the hero even in our own story, in our own life. We thank you that you are. And that by faith in you, you have rescued us from our sin and the penalty that we deserve. We thank you that you sought us out and found us in the ditch, half dead because of our own sin, on our way to destruction, and you rescued us. I pray, Lord, if there's anyone that is hearing my voice today that has not accepted the help of the rescuer, that they would call out to you in faith, ask for your forgiveness, receive Jesus as their Savior so that they might know what true rescue is like and be adopted into your eternal family. God, we thank you for your grace that you have come down in bodily form to live among us, to die the death that we deserve and to rise again that we might be justified by faith in you. We're so grateful. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would like to participate in the mission of Crossroads Church through financial support, checks can be mailed to Crossroads Church, 
Post Office Box 576, West Ossipee, New Hampshire, 03890.